Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my quarantine friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we explore the fascinating world of Monte Carlo computer simulation methodology as a way of knowing within the quantitative sciences. We also delve into bad ideas, the Dan's in my life, unique Zoom backgrounds, typical birth weights, theoretical models underlying reading glasses, junk on a po, bean dew, archery, blue and green blocks pots, felonious speeding, horse races, and Easter egg hunts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So today's topic reminded me of a story that happened a couple of years ago when out with a bunch of quantitative people. Okay, I'm going to pause you right now. I'm going to bet it involves someone named Dan. And the only reason I'm doing that is because you have like 18 different Dans in your life. So odds are there's a Dan in this story. Uh, uh, that is true. He is one among many. <laughs> Now, it's me, Dan Bauer, Doug Steinle, Chris Preacher, Sonia Sturba, a couple other people. It was at some conference. And we went out to this fancy pants tapas place. It's poorly lit, very dark, you know, hip music. I mean, I had no business being there at all. And they give out the menus, and somebody who just hated 50-year-olds printed this menu. It was <laughs> tiny font red ink on a black background <laughs> and it is just a screw you if you're over 30 years of age and so i get the menu and i can't read a thing and i'm angling it and i'm holding it up to the candle and of course i'm teleporting my mom when she was 50 and i was a teenager and literally wanted to just run out into the street and throw myself in front of a bus when she would hold her menu up to a candle. So I can't read it. Bauer has glasses and they're sitting on the table. And I say, hey, give me those. I, I want to read the menu. And he looks at me and said, well, they're not going to work. I said, just let me try. And he sighs and he says, they're for distance. They're not going to work. And I said, yeah, 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 but just let me try. And we get into this extended argument over whether he's going to give me the glasses or not. He literally will not hand them to me. And at one point, there's like silence at the table. And he has his arms crossed. And he said, I am not going to give you the glasses because they are designed for distance vision. They are not going to work. I said, just let me try. I just want to try them. Let me just see if they work. And finally, he just shoves them to me. And he's like, fine, try them. And so I put them on and hold the menu up. And I'm like... I can't see anything. And he throws his hands up and he says, oh, for fuck's sake. And it is such a wonderful microcosm of what we're going to talk about today, which is he knew the underlying theoretical model that designed the glasses and they are for distance. They are not for close in reading, but I didn't care about the theory. I just wanted to look empirically. I wanted to test it. I just wanted to see myself. And I just thought that was a really nice segue into thinking uh -huh. about computer simulation methodology and how we use it in our science. Did you put the glasses on 1,000 times and then aggregate because over the results? you do not know <laughs> if on the 458th time... Yes, it is a nice little microcosm of what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about today is Monte Carlo designs, Monte Carlo simulation... You can discern between things that are technically called simulation and things that are called Monte Carlo research. We're going to be talking about Monte Carlo research, which involves simulation methodology. And we talked about something a number of episodes ago now. It's really nice to be able to say that, by the way. <laughs> we talked about ways of knowing a number of episodes ago. The episode, I think it was mm. Talking to Strangers, where Alexis called in. The way that we know things might feel different from the way other people know things, people who do real research. But as we said at that time, what we do is a content area, and there are research methods associated with it. It seems like it might be nice for us to do is go through what research is like in this particular world, and this particular world focusing in on Monte Carlo research specifically, which of course is not the only way that we do research, right? Which, if nothing else, is one of the big points I think we need to push 
quant methods is not just simulation. It is one tool in the toolbox. And this is a point of frustration to me sometimes because I feel like over time it's become viewed, especially in younger people coming into the field, as our only approach Mm -hmm. to the science. And I have been part of conversations where students say, well, what are you simulating? What's your simulation? As we'll talk about as the discussion unfolds, there are many, many ways that we can get scientific insights into our theories and hypotheses, computer simulation of which is just one. Absolutely, right. And we alluded to this a little bit in the Talking to Strangers episode You know, mathematics is a way to understand a lot of things, and people who come into our field somehow bypass that. I don't know if it's because of the route that they took to get here. I had a background in math. Even I, when I arrived at this field, didn't tend to think of things as mathematically as I should. And I remember giving one of my first presentations at a conference, and it was a simulation, and a guy in the back of the room at the end of my talk said, couldn't you just have derived that? And in my head, I'm thinking, screw you, you, de- you derive it, I, <laughs> you know, because I couldn't, I, I didn't even think about it that way, right? I thought about it in terms of unleashing the hounds and letting them roam around until they came up with an answer. And of course, you know, a couple of decades later, as I'm sitting in conferences, watching people give presentations, I, it's all I can do but raise my hand in the back of the room and say, couldn't you have derived that or proved that? It's, <laughs> it's a funny thing to come full circle. But, but absolutely, there are multiple ways of knowing. Some of them are the Bauer. I don't need to simulate that because I know how glasses work, you idiot. Uh, And then there's the Curran way of, I'm going to put these damn glasses on anyway. I just want to see. I don't care what Bauer says. Those glasses might have worked in that situation with that color font on that background. (laughs) With that particular group of people, you don't know. You don't. (laughs) You don't. So I'd like us to walk around in in a somewhat orderly way through the space of Monte Carlo designs and research. I have some suggestions as to how we might do that, if that's okay with you. But I'm going to start with a confession. Are you ready? My confession is why I was attracted to Monte Carlo research in the first place. I had an advisor, and he had different strands of research. One strand had to do with rating scales, how they work, things we could do to manipulate their effectiveness. And the other had to do with more statistical methodology, and which ultimately involved Monte Carlo simulation. And I remember he asked me if I, want, if I was gravitating toward one or the other, and I was very nervous about the statistical methodology one. And he described it as Monte Carlo methods. And all I could picture was James Bond. You know, (laughs) it sounded so cool. Like I would be coming out of the Hotel de Paris in Monaco. Now, are you picturing that as Sean Connery? Because that's that's who I see in Monte Carlo (laughs) as Sean Connery. Yeah, I've updated my prior a little bit. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. Right, we're going to be (laughs) talking about the James Bond of research today. As I set it up, a point that I want to make right up front is that this is an area of research like everything else is an area of research. And I know that I already said that, but what I mean is that there's good Monte Carlo research, there's bad Monte Carlo research. There's Monte Carlo research that has a very tight validity argument. There's Monte Carlo research that has very poor validity arguments. This type of research can suffer from all of the problems that others do. It's not immune to that. And I hope that as we go through, maybe, you know, you and I can trade suggestions or something as we go through that, that we will keep coming back to that point that we're trying to lay out things that make this research good, just like we would want to do for any other type of research. Yes. And one of the points that I would really like to hammer home is just echoing that when you think about simulation methods, this is our way that we gather empirical data. 
every discipline has its way. And in psychology, there's developmental and social and clinical and all the ways and then branching out into education and health sciences. There are all ways that we have theory, we generate hypotheses, and we design an experiment and gather data to empirically evaluate our hypotheses. And simulation methodology is quantitative's way of doing that. And echoing your point, we should then treat it exactly as you would in any other way, in terms of experimental conditions, in terms of sampling design, in terms of measurement and scoring and modeling and internal and external validity. All of those should be applied in precisely the same way as if you were in a developmental psychology dissertation meeting. Being grumpy old man for a moment is I think our field sometimes falls short of that. I have been in many a dissertation proposal where wonderfully complicated analytic and statistical models are laid out in the front end to motivate a simulation. And then when you get into the proposed method and results, there are no dependent variables that are described and there's no analysis that's described. If this were in a developmental or a clinical or a social dissertation proposal, I would have written the advisor the night before and say, there's not enough information here for me to participate in the meeting. I don't know what the dependent variables are. I don't know how they're going to be analyzed. I don't know what basis a conclusion is going to be made about group differences. And I worry that this meeting is premature. Yet I've lost count of how many simulation meetings I've been in where I've raised my hand and said, so what are your dependent variables? You just hit a whole bunch of things in a very brief way, and I'd really love it if they could be unpacked a little bit more. Are you okay if I create some game rules ooh, here? Ooh, ooh, yes. Okay, 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 okay. Here's what I thought we would do, and you just started listing some points, but maybe we could take turns sort of starting from more broad setup to closer to the weeds in Monte Carlo Methods. And you and I take turns making a point, explaining what it is about it that we think is important and defend it, and then the other person can pile on top of that a little bit. But let's not go back and forth. I have a better okay. idea. This is a ra- this is a random process, <laughs> this, this Mon- Monte Carlo thing. So we have to introduce an element of randomness. So I have no idea what's coming here. Because yet again, our outline for today's episode is we should talk about simulation. And... <laughs> People don't know this, but I'm recording in my son's bedroom as uh, of necessity today. What was the one surprising element of that, Patrick? When a (laughs) half-naked boy walked behind you? You know, a lot of us are having fun with Zoom and these backgrounds where you can have the rolling surf coming in. I have mine right now, the Teton Mountains in the background. And for some reason, Greg has a 14-year-old boy in boxer shorts as his background. Well, he wouldn't get out of bed, and I told him I had to use his room to record today. So as Patrick and I are setting up, unbeknownst to Patrick, my son walks by in boxers. All right. So I am limited to the random generator mechanisms that I have sitting here uh, at his desk, and he doesn't have any coins for me to flip. We could, of course, rock, paper, scissors, which is always a a good mechanism. Oh, I am so good Um, at that. Are you? By the way, in our house, it's not called rock, paper, scissors. My wife was born and raised in Hawaii, where they call it junk in a po, but it's the same thing. Okay, I would still crush you no matter what you call it. I. <laughs> but anyway, go okay. ahead. All right, so how about this? I'll ask a numerical question, and if our answers match in terms of both being odd or both being even, then you go. Okay. And if they're different, then I'll go. Do you think we can make this work? Are you ready? I am. Here we go. For <laughs> first one. How much did you weigh when you were born? I have no idea. Are you kidding I, How me? would I know that? You suck at this game already, <laughs> right? Um, right out of the gate. Uh, 18 pounds. <laughs> okay. We're really close. I was four pounds, nine ounces. <laughs> <laughs> four pounds? Isn't that tiny? That's like a bag of sugar. It is. I was very premature. Okay, we're going to call that not a match, so you go. All right, sir. I will start off with a preliminary beef that I have about research that uses Monte Carlo methods, and that is that people often really have not articulated their research question clearly at all. They will say things like, I'm going to look at the performance of this method. 
And you're like, but but what is the research question that you're addressing? Is it the performance of that method under a variety of circumstances? Why are you choosing those circumstances? Why is that a research question worth studying? Are you comparing that method to other things? And along with the research question, what hypotheses do you have that go with that research question? Why is that a question worth addressing? And which way do you think it's going to go based on your understanding of things? People often seem to think that the method itself just carries with it a question. And there's no attempt to define the question. There's no attempt to justify that as a question worth knowing. Sometimes people just treat the inquiry itself as sort of self-defining as being worthy of something. And they will say things like, no one has ever looked at this before. And my standard response to that is there are two reasons no one has ever looked at that before. One is that you're ahead of the game and you're, you're really getting at something important. The other is it's a dumb idea. And I need you to help me understand (laughs) that it's not a dumb idea. So articulating your research question, contextualizing it in what has been done, and advancing some hypotheses about how you think this is going to work and why. Just like any other type of study, you have to be able to do that. If you can't do that, then we're, in my view, we're not going any further. So I think what you're raising is singularly the biggest frustration I have when I read a lot of simulations in practice, which is, what's the point? Why are you doing this? This is our method of data collection. And if you think about it in that way, if you think about this is how we gather empirical data, what's the point of gathering data? And it's to empirically evaluate theoretically derived research hypotheses. And I think it is so tempting to say, well, I wonder what would happen if we did this. You talked about why nobody has done. I really like that is is why nobody before has looked at this. And you said that one is you're ahead of your time, which I love. And one is it's a (laughs) dumb question, which I love. And a corollary of the dumb question is because we already know what the outcome is going to be. I wonder instead of 200 as a sample size, what will happen if we have 100? (laughs) I got a hankering for what that's going to be. Now, that's minimizing some really good work that's done in small sample research because at some point you start running into convergence problems, instability. What happens if you're using a large sample estimator within small samples? That makes sense because that's the question. The question is, at what point does the machinery break down? It reminds me of a story I had. I was meeting with one of my heroes a long time ago, more than 20 years ago, and it was Michael Brown. He passed away somewhat recently, and he was just not only a titan in the field, but just one of the warmest, most caring, most supporting guys you could ever hope to meet. I was a brand new assistant professor. I had an opportunity to sit down with him. He came to UNC to give a talk, and I wanted to share findings I had from my dissertation that was a simulation, and I briefly described the setup. And I flipped to the table to show him, and he said, you don't need to show me. And I was kind of confused, and I said, I'm I'm sorry, because I was wondering, did I show him this before? Had he, I had presented at a conference, maybe he'd seen it, and I said, you don't want to see it? And he said, no, I know what's in the Mm -hmm. tables. And again, I was (laughs) confused. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, they can't come out any other way than what you described, He paused and he said, Patrick, you're using simulation as a substitute for thinking. And I almost burst out crying. (laughs) We've talked about this before, is I had my dead bird and I was going to drop it at the feet of Michael Uh Brown. And he said, you're using this as a substitute for thinking. I literally, I kind of caught my Mm -hmm. breath and I, I said, well, what do you mean? And then in the most supportive, caring way, he said, you can do better than this. He said, let's talk about how you can test this in a way that we don't know what the answer is going to be, that the answer might be different than what we expect. And then we went on to have this amazing conversation about how I could redesign my simulations in a way that would offer a novel test of a hypothesis that wouldn't simply serve as validation that I generated the data in the way that I described. That was such a meaningful interaction with me. I carried that forward for years and years and years. And I'm going to be a grumpy old man for just a minute. I don't feel like we as a field always give feedback in that way anymore. 
it would have been very easy for him to say, oh, that's really interesting. Good job. Mm -hmm. But he didn't. He said, I already know what the answer is going to be. Let's talk about ways that you could do something that I don't know what the answer is going to be. I'm going to go ahead and do another random one, and we'll see where it lands. Are you ready? If I know the answer, yes. The month of your birth, odd or even? Do you know Uh, this, or do you have to phone a friend? January, February, March, April, May, odd. I am April. That's even. So we do not match. Does that mean... You go. All right. Uh, Okay. You alluded to this a bit in your very nice story about Michael Brown. Uh, People create conditions, right? They choose their independent variables. And just like we have independent variables in other research, there are independent variables in Monte Carlo research. And you mentioned one of them, sample size, but there are a whole bunch of different independent variables that we might manipulate. We might manipulate distributional shape. We might manipulate relations with covariates. We might manipulate numbers of categories that variables I mean, whatever conditions are tied to the research question, one of the challenges that I have, though, is that the rationales that people have for the conditions they choose, I think, are often extraordinarily weak. So, for example, someone might say, I chose these sample sizes. Uh, First of all, they might not say any reason, but when pressed, they might say, because that's what other studies do. And I think that's about the lamest reason imaginable. Someone chooses sample sizes of 800, 900, 1,000. Usually that's going to be an absurd thing to do because there's just not a lot of action between 800, 900, and 1,000. But if other studies did it, are you going to do it too? No, it doesn't. It has to make sense in the context of what it is you're doing. The values that you choose for whatever characteristics you have have to have the potential to illustrate whatever phenomena you're interested in learning about the performance of whatever methods it is you are studying. Uh, we'll talk about outcome variables, I'm sure, at some point. You already alluded to it. But you know, if people chose conditions where effect sizes were so massive that the power estimates were always pegged right around one, then you wouldn't choose all of those conditions. They would be ridiculous conditions to choose. So I need people to choose their independent variables with principles, and those should usually associate with the research question, choose the levels of those independent variables in ways that have rationales beyond that's what has been done previously. I need you to be able to justify why those are levels where we think interesting things will be happening and that those are actually levels that are things that people will encounter. If you pick a combination of sample size and distributional shape and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that never occurs in the real world, it might be sort of academically interesting that your method falls apart in that region. But if nobody ever encounters that, then why do I need to know about that? And there are some studies where people choose the levels of their independent variables because the goal is to break the method. And I understand that. You want to know what the limits of performance are. This technique that I'm examining, that I'm proposing, and that I'm road testing in this Monte Carlo study, it breaks down when things sample size gets about this low, or it breaks down when distributions have this kind of shape. Okay, that's interesting, but it's a lot less interesting if nobody ever encounters those particular situations. So I want things contextualized in prior research to some extent. I want it contextualized in terms of what occurs in reality. And also, something that I really don't let any of my students get out of doing, I want them to do a little bit of pilot testing before they even go into the full design. I want to know that what you're doing is going to work. And by work, I mean it's going to study levels of your independent variables that can coexist, that you're not going to have convergence failures all the time, even though that, of course, is is a result in and of itself. You're not going to have power levels always pegged at some ceiling value. I want a little bit of spot checking around the proposed space because otherwise, when I turn you loose on this particular study, you're going to come back with a whole lot of nothing. And it dovetails back on to the only point I have for this entire episode, which is it's our method of data collection to test hypotheses. So what are your hypotheses? What is the theory that is informing your research? What has already been done? What is left unresolved? What are your hypotheses that you are going to test? My students hate it when I say this, but when I I occasionally will say, oh, this thing just writes itself. (laughs) It doesn't because I get to go for a bike ride while they have to go back to their apartment and write itself. But (laughs) 
in a way, when you've articulated your theoretically derived research hypotheses, it should present one set of experimental design features that allow you to test that. Mm -hmm. And often I'll have a student say, well, I'll figure out my research questions and then I've got to really think hard about design factors. And my response often is, no, you shouldn't. If you put the due diligence into the research hypotheses, the design factors should be logical. That if you're making a hypothesis about effect size, about distribution, about number of ordinal categories, about whatever it is you're studying, there should be a very small number of features that you're going to manipulate to test your hypotheses in the way that you would like to. And so I agree with you completely on this as a point of frustration. Again, I've been in so many proposal meetings where someone will say population values will be chosen to reflect conditions commonly encountered in research. It's like, what the <laughs> hell does that mean? What? How are you going to do this? How are you going to parameterize the model? How are you going to structure the model? And how are you going to do that in an ecologically valid way that what you're studying reflects what we might encounter in practice? So there are dozens and dozens of simulation studies on mixture modeling. So our Sir Mix-a-Lot episode was a couple <laughs> of weeks ago, and some are done better than others. But a lot of these that focus on class extraction, so how do you go about finding the correct number of classes, mm -hmm. they have massive effect sizes. Like class separations that are two or three standard deviations yeah. apart. <laughs> and a buddy of mine, Dave Flora, he had a great line as he talked about blatant class analysis, <laughs> which I just love. That's great. You don't need a model. You just look at it. Identifying using some BIC or ache or some cutoff to correctly classify mixtures that have are separated by three standard deviations is not an ecologically valid or useful thing to examine. It's like you better be able to, right? A lot of times the term comes up sanity check. If you're not able to find those, then you in some way didn't generate your data in the way that you said that you did. Exactly. All right. Since I have had the last two points, mm -hmm. the chances that the next one are you are much, 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 much higher. <laughs> I'm yeah. due, right? Right. Okay. The uh, number of letters in your wife's first name? Six. Six, Andrea. My wife's first name, her real name, not her stripper name, G-O-L-D-I-E, six. All right. There's a match. What do you got? Let's just be logical if we're going to move from IVs to my next pet peeve, which are mm -hmm. dependent variables. Yeah, good. DVs. Put yourself in a dissertation proposal meeting developmental site, and they talk about this wonderfully beautiful, amazing introduction that leads to a set of research questions. There's a very clearly defined experimental design and sampling framework, because that's how we can think about a simulation as well, is... You're going to sample within the school, you're going to stratify on biological sex and grade and ethnicity, and you've got your sample and you're going to fit some models to it. And then, honest to gosh, you say the results will be evaluated to determine if there are differences across these demographic characteristics. Again, I would very politely say I'm not able to offer feedback because you've given me no details in which I can have any informed reaction to this. Yet that happens almost all the time mm -hmm. in many of these simulation settings. And my point is, what is the outcome? What are you measuring? What are your dependent variables? And it's maddening to be on page 40 of a highly technical, highly quantitative focused treatise on whatever it is that you're studying, and then no outcome variable mm -hmm. is described. So what are you studying? And we don't need to get into the weeds of what all the options are. There are many. Give me some, right? though. Throw some, so, throw some of your the key independent, right, or so dependent variables. Parameter estimates, standard errors, indirect effects chi-square values, fit indices, 
Think about anything that's in an output from a single analysis, and in principle, that can be picked off and retained. If you were to do a simulation and fit a thousand models a thousand times and gather together all your factor loadings and have a Mm -hmm. distribution of factor loadings. Mm -hmm. So you have a sampling distribution of the factor loadings that has a mean, median, and mode. It has a standard deviation. It has correlations with other parameter estimates, right? These are empirical estimates of what are the asymptotic covariance matrix, right? And they're wonderful ties we can make to that. But then what do we do with those? There's absolute bias, Mm-hmm. Right. So if you have some population value, on average, how different is your sample value from the population value? All right. So it's often just observed minus expected. So observed is whatever you obtain in a given run. Expected is what the population value. You add all those up and divide by how many you are. And that's an absolute bias. I like that. I'm a relative bias guy. Because absolute bias is you don't have any kind of shared metric to pin it to. So an absolute bias of O2 is massive for one parameter estimate, but it's tiny for another parameter. So we'll be bold and we'll divide by the expected. So Mm -hmm. relative bias is observed minus expected divided by expected. And that's just the percent that you're off. So on average is your estimate, does it have a relative bias of 5% or 10% or 25%, right? So that's relative bias. You can get some people going on mean squared error. And I go back and forth on this, but it's a variance. Mm-hmm. Observe minus expected squared, add them all up, divide by how many you got. It's, it's a variance. And that looks at the variability. Why I, I sometimes have trouble getting my head around mean squared error myself is you can show pretty easily that mean squared error is an inextricable combination of sampling variability and squared bias. Mm-hmm. So if you have bias in a parameter estimate, that's going to show up in the mean squared error along with the sampling variability. And I don't like it for that reason, generally speaking. I think it's not particularly diagnostic. It's an omnibus measure of how badly you're doing, but it's not diagnostic in terms of understanding the problem. If you have an archer shooting at a target and the archer clusters a whole bunch of arrows up and to the left, really, really tight cluster, that's archer number one, and archer number two shoots them all around the target, just crazy all around with no particular preference for direction. They might have the same root mean square error or mean squared error, but they don't tell you the nature of the problem, right? One of them is a very clear bias problem, and the other is just... (laughs) (laughs) The person's erratic. By God, they're around the target, but they're all over the place. And I don't need this general measure. I would much rather have a measure of variability and a measure of bias to help me understand what the problem is. Yep, me too. I wish in some applications that the dependent variables were thought about even more creatively. So thinking about things like proportion of models that converge or number of iterations Mm -hmm. or we have gradient and hessian matrices that they're interesting things to think about there a big one that i've done in in some of my earlier work were empirical power estimates Mm -hmm. pick off your critical ratios and you can do anything you want but set an alpha of o5 And just what is the proportion of the thousand parameter estimates that you deem significant at 05 or not? Mm -hmm. Confidence interval coverage. Build a confidence interval and take the proportion that overlap the population parameter. You know what I find is a lot of the things I most want to see are lectures that we give to undergrad stats. What is power? Well, if we were to do this study an infinite number of times under these conditions, what is the probability that we would find a significant effect, right? That's how we teach about power. That's exactly what we're doing in a simulation is if I do a thousand replications at an N of a hundred for a given effect size under a given set of circumstances, what's the probability that I would find a significant effect? Mm -hmm. Just given I feel like your random assignment of topics is rigged, right? Clearly, because we had you went, you went, and I went. So, Uh you know, you're twice as likely to be picked as I am. I'm going to piggyback another one on just because we have other things to hunt. Mm -hmm. Giving your dependent variables, what the hell are you going to do with them? 
Again, I have been in so many meetings where a student will say, I'm going to examine the distributions to determine if there's a difference. Okay, put yourself in that developmental meeting. You would ream Mm -hmm. a developmental doctoral student if they said, I'm going to see if boys are higher than girls. Mm -hmm. Yet we do that all the time. And so that introduces the notion of a meta model. So if you have a dependent variable, then how do you analyze that? Do you use general linear modeling procedure? A lot of times people will say, oh, well, I'm not going to fit a meta model because I have a million observations, so power is 1.0, they're not useful. Then use an effect size. Mm-hmm. Use an eta squared, a partial eta squared, a squared semi-partial correlation. And these are subjective, arbitrary decisions, but I don't care. Pick one and say that if these two effects are more than half a standard deviation apart from one another, I'm going to treat that as a meaningful effect across my design. But there are high-end simulations published in high-end journals that show a series of traveling box plots that says the blue ones are higher than the green ones. <laughs> can I can I piggyback onto that a little bit? Please. Okay. I want to piggyback in both parts. The first part where you're talking about dependent variables and the second part about reporting that kind of stuff. In my world, type 1 error has been another outcome. And the reason I mentioned type 1 error to complement your discussion of power as an outcome is that is for two reasons. One is our outcome variables really have to go hand in hand with our decision to do a simulation in the first place, because not every outcome variable actually requires a simulation, literally a simulation where you're drawing tons of samples. And power wouldn't technically require it if you were able to derive the function that represents power. That's true. Type 1 error is something, and power is also something where we usually do think about it from a simulation perspective, though, because oftentimes we're manipulating conditions that make whatever function that we could otherwise derive be a little bit uh, wonky. Reason I mentioned type 1 error is that um, oftentimes we'd like to know whether or not a particular test is performing right around the target alpha level. So if you're doing tests at a 0.05 level and and you're finding that your particular test statistic is rejecting at a 0.08 level or a 0.10 level, um, at some point you have concern that you're getting too many false positives. That is something that you need to simulate. It also ties to the issue of how many replications you're going to need. There are some outcome measures that you have that you need a lot of replications, and there are some outcome measures where you don't need a whole lot. In some ways, this becomes a bit moot because of the computational power that we have at our disposal right now, right? Where you can say, well, should I do 100,000 or a million replications per cell? It's like, well, I don't know. Do you want to go to the bathroom or not, right? That's because it happens so, so fast. Um, But... But we don't need seventh decimal precision on our type 1 error rates. On the other hand, we're not going to do, you know, if someone tells me that they're going to do 50 replications per cell, and by the way, there are some models that are so complex that 50 replications per cell actually might be quite ambitious, even today, Mm. given the complexity of the model. But the person should know that maybe type 1 error won't be a particularly useful outcome because you're not going to get a lot of precision around estimating something that's supposed to be at 0.05 when you don't even have 100 uh, (laughs) replications. So all of this has to tie together. Your outcome measure, your justification for why you're doing simulation, the number of replications that you are going to do. All of these things have to be part of a coherent story. The other issue on the presentation side, I liked very much what you said about how are you going to analyze this stuff in the end? Are you going to use the, the blue box plots and the green blocks, box pl- I can't even say bu- blocks plots. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to use the green box plots or the blue box plots? That was pretty good. Or are you going to do something that is more general in your model based like an analysis of variance? And you're right, right? People have said this that oftentimes the ANOVA that you do to analyze your simulation results is much more of a a validation of your sample size than anything else, right? But what you said is, I think, spot on. So pick an effect size measure. Decide a threshold for when a particular effect matters, whether it's eta squared or partial eta squared. So I think what you said there is really, really nice. Summarizing the results of a large simulation study can be really, really challenging. I have been a part of dissertations that might have well over a thousand cells in a design. Mm -hmm. 
how do you possibly convey those results? And that is a challenge, not a challenge that makes the study not worth doing, but it becomes a challenge and something that you really have to work at, right? You don't necessarily want to marginalize across all the conditions to say what's going on because then you lose information about the interactions, but you also don't want to represent all thousand plus cells of things. Sometimes you find representative patterns in the results that you can say the rest of the sample sizes behaved accordingly or the rest of the non-normal distributions behaved similarly and so forth. But this is a real trick. And I think a good study has captured the essence of the massive amounts of results that there typically are in a way that's well communicated to the reader. Yeah. And that I think is a key point is as each year goes by, I think it's in my life in general, but in simulation methodology in particular, I find myself getting more and more focused in a smaller number of design elements, a more focused kind Mm -hmm. of question and data generation. You say, well, I'm going to add a heterogeneous condition. (laughs) It's like, all right. How many levels does it have? You just doubled or tripled or quadrupled (laughs) the size of your study. Absolutely right. I raised in an earlier episode about one of the best professors I ever had in my life was Clark Presson uh, when I was in grad school. And he had this wonderful notion of reader energy as a person sits down with a manuscript with a finite amount of energy to navigate what you're presenting. And he strongly argued that if you make a reader come back a second time to finish the paper, you failed the reader. Mm -hmm. And you have to respect the reader energy and you have to curate it and you have to balance how you're spending it. There's so many simulation papers where I have run out of my reader energy halfway through the results. Mm-hmm. And at some point I lean back and say, I've, I've lost the thread. It's a failure in communication. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. And the most important part that you want the reader energy, and this is what Clark would hammer us home with, is in the discussion, right? Where you bring everything back together again And I'm spent. I applaud you for having reader energy by the time you get there. So for me, I am reading a manuscript or an article, but oftentimes it's a manuscript, and I feel like I am a bike rider. And I'm riding, and everything's pretty good. The terrain's been fairly flat. That's fine. And then I flip over to the results section, and I feel like... I just see a giant hill in front of me (laughs) and I don't want to go through 22 tables, right? So bless your heart for for wading into tables one through eight already and then losing your reader mojo. Mm. Um, I see the hill and I just want to get off my bike at the bottom of the hill. Yep. All right, do your random thingy. All right, sir. Um, You have said before that you do not care one lick about basketball, but surely you have a sports team that you like. I do have a sports team, and quit calling me Shirley. Okay. (laughs) Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. (laughs) (laughs) The number of letters in not the city, but the, the mascot. It's the who's your favorite team? Four. Cubs, Chicago Cubs. There you go. Okay. Um, My favorite sports team is the Seahawks, Seattle Seahawks, S-E-A-H-A-W-K-S, eight. All right, four and eight. That's you, my friend. I knew I was due. All right. All right. This is not random at all. It was Greg, Greg, (laughs) Pat, Pat. You can see. So let me think for a moment. We've got the independent variables. We've got the dependent variables, the meta model, You know, maybe just throwing a log on that fire is, oh my gosh, use graphics whenever you Mm -hmm. can. Anything you can with traveling box plots, distribution, casement plots. What was it? It wasn't too long ago as I was reviewing a manuscript and I think I texted you a picture of table 17 and it was in like eight point (laughs) font, you know, and it was like, oh God. If we are, again, treating this as if we're gathering data to test a hypothesis, how then can we circle back to the introduction and close that deductive-inductive loop that we aspire to in our science? The main frustration I encounter in reading discussion sections in simulations is the overwhelming human universal desire to Mm overgeneralize. The conclusions that you're making based on your discrete set 
of level. Mm -hmm. These are important, and I know they're important, and I'm not bad-mouthing them at all, but a lot of simulations are, well, do we need to worry about this, right? What degree of non-normality can we get away with where normal theory maximum likelihood is okay? Was there a small intra-class correlation that we can have, but we still don't have to do a multi-level model? What are the fewest number of ordinal categories we need when we can still use robust maximum likelihood without having to go to nonlinear models? Is These are all very real questions, and I embrace them. I've contributed to some of that literature myself. Mm-hmm. So let's say we find out that in 18 cells that you did in your simulation, and you find out that if you have an intra-class correlation of less than 0.02, right? So for people who aren't familiar, interclass correlation is a numerical estimate of the degree of nesting that you might have in the data. So you have kids nested within classroom or something like that. And you want to know, well, in my simulation, I found that if an ICC is less than 02, if you ignore nesting, there are almost no negative outcomes of that. Is your standard errors are mostly okay, so you don't need to do a multi-level model. And my thought is, well, maybe for the conditions that you studied, mm-hmm. the number of classes that you examine, the number of kids within classes, it becomes an interaction question, becomes a generalizability question. There's a huge temptation to say, in your design, if you find an ICC of less than 02, you don't need to do a multi-level model. And I start to feel very uncomfortable about the overgeneralizability of those conclusions. It's a reminder to say, under the conditions that we studied here, we did not find meaningful bias in the standard errors if the intraclass correlation was below 0.02. However, it may be that in other settings, other designs, things like that, that this may be a problematic element. So my big charge is don't overgeneralize the findings to say, oh, you don't need to do this anymore, or you always have to do this, generalizing across a mass of settings when it's only based on a very small number of conditions you studied in your experiment. Yeah, I would say it's a tricky walk for people to make because on the one hand, you do want them to be very careful about their generalizability, the external validity issues. On the other hand, you don't want to leave the reader with, well, now we know how this works under 18 conditions. We've got... (laughs) you know, 700,000 more conditions to study, and then we'll have this entirely mapped out. You want there to be this corner of the world where you feel like you can generalize. You just have to be careful about moving outside that particular corner, because otherwise it's always going to be true that no one has ever studied this under the conditions that you have, right? I mean, that that's not just about simulation. That's about anything, um, pretty much anything that we have. So, We have to find a way to generalize carefully, but not overgeneralize. Do you think that's fair or did I overstep? Exactly. And I would teleport back to the developmental psychology research is exactly that same thing holds. You don't conclude we only know how anxiety and depression relate in these 120 kids who we study, Mm -hmm. right? It's that wandering out into the ideographic nomothetic topology, we studied a particular phenomena under a discrete set of circumstances that, if done properly, allows us to make generalizations beyond the subjects and the conditions we studied here, but only to a point. It's like an extrapolation issue. I feel confident that these findings that we established in our sample with our measures and our conditions generalize beyond that, but not to all children at all ages in all settings. And so again, I think it's a classic cooking Campbell external Mm -hmm. validity is the extent to which we can generalize our findings across person, place, and time. It's absolutely no different here than it is in any other data collection scenario in any other discipline in the sciences. My brain shut off after you said ideographic nomothetic topology. Um, (laughs) That was spectacular. I don't... I, I saw go- them at Cat's Cradle <laughs> really? about two years ago. <laughs> With 20 Temmies Deep? 20- oh, <laughs> man, they were awesome. 
All right. So it is my inclination to do the last randomization for the person who has to wrap all this up. What do you think? Could I call an audible on this a little bit? Absolutely. Let me pitch an idea. What if we do a randomization mm-hmm. to give three do's and three don'ts for doing a simulation on your own? All right. So you want three do's, three don'ts, and they may or may not reiterate things that we've already said, or they have to be completely fresh? They can reiterate. Okay. Let's try. I have no idea what it's going to come out of me and, and if it'll be different from what was said before, but I'm ready. So uh, do you want to determine the random mechanism no, also you've got. No, you've been doing well so far. I don't know. Do you know the number of speeding tickets you've gotten in your life? <laughs> I do not. Um, <laughs> let's say that they are prodigious. Okay. I have a lifelong problem with taking those white rectangular signs as suggestions. It's a limit, officer. It's a lower limit. <laughs> it Let's say that one of them is actually felonious speeding, which oh. I did not know was a unique level of speeding. I saw felonious speeding at the cat's cradle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Pick another one. All right, sir. Do you know the number of tattoos that you have? Zero. All right. I will see your zero and match your zero. If zero is treated as an even number, it doesn't matter. We're the same. So you go with your do's and don'ts. I wish I was brave enough to get a tattoo. You know, one of the sweetest things happened. I was teaching a workshop. I have a standard line, you know, Zeta, the the disturbance in SEM, and it is Zeta sub I. And Dave Kenny in his 1979 book, correlation on causality has this wonderful term that human freedom resides in the error term. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that. And I have a kind of a standard line I have when I teach is I talk about zeta sub i being that part of the data that is unexplained by the model. And I say, if I was ever brave enough to have a tattoo, I would get zeta sub i. And I was teaching a workshop a few years ago, and a young woman at break came up to me, and she said, I have something to show you. And she pulled her hair back, and behind her ear was a Zeta Sabai. And she said, for a year, I've been trying to decide what tattoo to get, and nothing seemed right. And she said, that was the one that I I liked. And so you cannot say my teaching has not impacted people. Is somewhere out in the world is a young woman who has Zeta Sabai as a tattoo. That's sweet. So three do's. What a dumb idea. Who came up with this? (laughs) And some of these are bringing pulling together because they are things that we've talked about. One is do use simulation methodology to serve a purpose. It's not going out back to see what's there. It's not pulling it and see what happens. I hate it when people write, we were surprised to find, or we did not expect to see. You're not going out back and poking things with sticks just to see what happens. Is Make sure a simulation serves a purpose. The second one is trust your theory. I teach a doctoral level quantitative research methods class and we spend a lecture uh, talking about retractions in the literature. And there's some website, I'm forgetting what it is, but it tracks retractions. I pulled down some quantitative ones that have been retracted and there's one that's really interesting is an entire published paper went out and was retracted later because of a programming error that was found. And I applaud the authors for identifying that. They contacted the editor. They requested the retraction. If you read the abstract of the paper, you would know that there was a problem because they described the findings in a way that goes back to Michael Brown. They can't be that way. And I don't remember the Mm -hmm. details now, but it was looking at full information estimators and limited information estimators. And across every condition, the limited information estimator was more efficient. And it can't be. In the way that they studied it, it can't be. And so trust theory, trust your gut. That if something is a shock to you, make sure you didn't miss a do loop or an array. And then the third do is treat simulation methodology as one way of knowing. Among many ways, it's a complement to our science where there are many other ways of knowing. We haven't talked about any of those here. We could do another episode. Well, if you're not going to do a simulation, what would you do? 
primary data collection, secondary data analysis, analytic derivation, so treat it as a way of knowing. Three don'ts. One of the biggest ones is don't overgeneralize. Mm -hmm. It's a hard middle ground to find, but treat it as external validity. The extent to which that you can validly generalize your findings, but don't overgeneralize. Two, I'll pair two together. Don't treat it as a horse race or an Easter egg hunt. All right, a horse race is I've got Hancock's model and I've got Curran's model. I'm going to generate data consistent with Curran's model and then fit Curran's model and Hancock's model and show universally that Curran's model wins, right? I, I can't stand horse race simulations where you're going to, it's like this death match of you're going to compare all these different models and declare a winner. And a variant of that is an Easter egg hunt, is you're going to bury something and then try to go find it. Part of it is that's not necessarily a scientific question. And another part of it is, you know, often if you don't find it, then you probably didn't generate the data the way that you said you did. So that's point two. And then point mm -hmm. three is a parallel doppelganger to my point three on the do's, which is don't treat simulation as the only way of knowing. We can do really good quantitative work that does not involve a computer simulation, that does not involve generating data in a way that is has a thousand different cells. Is there spectacularly good quantitative methodological work out there that has nothing to do with simulation? And so if somebody is working in a field where they're not doing a massive simulation, that doesn't mean that they're not doing good quantitative science. Those are my three. Very nice. Mine, of course, will overlap with yours, so I will be more brief. And my do's. Number one, do try to do the math or at least understand what the math is and why it is intractable. Um, and it might just be intractable to you, but do understand how the math would work if you could do the math. I just, I, I don't like the knee-jerk reaction going straight to simulation without at least understanding where the math is. And by the way, sometimes the math is doable by programs, right? If you can code something up in Maple or some other math software that can, that can get at some of the things that you can't do the integrals longhand or you can't do some of the stuff, that's okay. That doesn't mean you don't have access to things that can't help you do the math. So do make an honest attempt at understanding what the math is. Um, that's my first do. My second do is do a really good job of contextualizing your work in prior literature. Make it crystal clear why this is a question worth answering. And my third do is always tie what you're studying to the ability to answer real-world questions. At the end of this study, what are real people going to be able to do better? You are not doing this study just for the nerds out there. Ultimately, you are doing it for the people who will be using this tool. So do make sure that you are tying what you are doing to the real researcher out there being able to answer questions better. That notion of recommendation for researchers is huge. And so I very much endorse that. Thank you. On the don't list. I have some, I have a lot of specific don'ts and then I have some more broad don'ts and I feel like we're pulling back a little bit. So I won't, I won't throw weeds don'ts at you. So let me do some things that, that summarize. One thing is don't forget to be clear about, and we didn't, we didn't talk a whole lot about this, but don't forget to be really clear about what the models are in what you're doing. And people mean different things by the word model, depending on the type of research they're doing. But there are data generating models, there are analytical models that you're doing, and you have to be crystal clear about every aspect of the model. And the model doesn't just mean, as some of us talk about structural models, oh, this thing has a, a bearing on that. The model includes, are things linear? Are they nonlinear? How are they distributed? It is every single aspect of the data generating process. It's not always the part that you're interested in, but once you enter into the simulation world, you are responsible for articulating every aspect of the data generating model. So you have to be crystal clear about that, both in terms of data generation and in terms of analysis. I'll echo something I said before. Don't forget to run a small pilot study. Um, you need to know that you're not painting yourself in the corner before you jump into the, into the much larger design. And that means in terms of conditions that are viable 
sustainable in terms of results that will be interesting, fruitful, not pegged at some ceiling value, for example, with regard to power. It also means that you won't paint yourself in a corner with regard to model convergence. You know, oh, this cell doesn't work at all. And it looks like 19 of my cells would, would have found nothing. So be very planful and don't forget to try a little bit of pilot work, especially in some of the potentially more troublesome cells. And then my last don't ties to my last do, and that is really don't forget the applied reader. Now, before in my do, I wanted you to tie it to real world questions, the results that you're doing. But we also have a habit of communicating our results to people who belong in the same club as us, right? The, the rest of the nerds. And if you want anybody to be able to use the results of what you have done, you have to be cognizant, not just in anchoring the problems that you study to the space of real world problems, but you have to think about how you're going to communicate your results to people. I think we have to do make a real concerted effort to be somewhat translational in these things so that the people who are, you know, I want to use these longitudinal models. I don't quite know the research. The research is, you need to make it so that people are willing to engage in your results so that they can sense whether or not those methods that you're studying are things that they ought to be using. So I, I end my don'ts as I ended my do's always keep the applied researcher in mind in what you do and how you communicate it. Done. We hope everybody is well. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Hey, Potters! Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they prefer to get their awesome podcasts you can also follow us on twitter where our handle is at quantitude pod and visit our website quantitudethepodcast.org where you can leave us a text or a voice message you've been listening to quantitude one third less filling than your regular podcast today's episode has been sponsored by social distancing helping the world to understand what it feels like to be a statistician and by random forests where random trees fall without making random noise or do they? And by beta weights greater than one, the leading cause of making statistics professors mumble and change the subject whenever it comes up. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>